Hello, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, and you're visiting with Alligator Preserves. In today's episode, I'm going to introduce you to Sarah Poticha, author of a new book, West Point Woman, How Character is Created and Leadership is Learned. And Sarah is also my classmate from West Point Class of 1983. So don't go away. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Sarah, welcome. Welcome to Alligator Preserves. Thank you so much, Laurel. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm delighted that you're here too. Would you please introduce yourself as only you can do best to our listeners and viewers? Yes. Again, it's Sarah Paticha, and I am an author, speaker, and consultant. I've uh, spent probably 30 years in leadership development, uh, organizational development, and uh, published my book about a year ago. And it's essentially the story of uh, my experience as one of the first women to graduate from the United States Military Academy and the leadership lessons I learned that I think can be applied to anybody that has uh, had faced their own battles, been marginalized, uh, tried to break through the glass ceiling, those kind of stories. So I'm doing uh, a lot of book launches and speaking engagements, and uh, I work with clients, uh, all kinds of clients, um, manufacturing to healthcare. So I'm excited to be here and Tell you more. <laughs> Excellent. Marginalized, huh? Like women at West Point? Hmm. <laughs> you and I have a lot in common. Yes. But, the, but we never actually met or hung out at West Point. Now, someone might say, how could that be? There were so few women there. How did you guys not really get to know one another? What would yeah, you tell I, them? I would say that was one of the challenges. Um, there were so few of us. We were so busy. It's a very academically... Um, and physically and leadership challenging kind of place. So there was not a lot of time for one to get to know other women, unless you happen to be a varsity athlete like I was, or you were in some kind of club together, then you didn't have a lot of opportunity to see other women. Not a lot of gap time. No. She <laughs> wrote something in there about getting dress offs, running into the wrong room, right? Oh my goodness. You have so many stories in your book and we'll get you book in a little bit, but I wanted to talk a little bit about West Point and our experiences. Why did you decide that you wanted to be included in the fourth class that had women in it? Well, it's kind of how I was raised. My parents were big educators. They both earned PhDs. And from a young age, me and my three brothers were told, you're smart you're going to college, and you're paying your own way. So we always knew we'd have to get some kind of scholarship. And they also demanded we get very high grades. So it was kind of like, all right, we we have to do these things. And any job I had growing up, my dad would take half the money and put it away for college. But I didn't have enough money really for college, even with babysitting and lawn mowing and such. So um, one day, my dad was, uh, he read a lot. And he uh, noticed in the Christian Science Monitor, and he used to read for the news, that the academies had begun to accept women. And he turned to me and he said, Sarah, it'll be a unique experience for a woman. 
And so I considered it because I knew I didn't have the money, you know, to go to a really expensive college. So I had done well academically and, you know, was a good athlete and such. And so I went up to West Point and toured the place. And I think one of the things that struck me from the beginning, it was going to be difficult, but they stood for something. And I think even at that point in my life, I was looking for purpose. I was looking for something that was beyond myself. And uh, so that and the cross-country coach being very interested in me, that kind of sealed the deal. And I realized it was going to be tough. But, you know, when I got there and I'm getting screamed at and yelled at, nothing in my life prepared me for that. I used to say, yeah, Dad, this is unique, all right, (laughs) you know. But in fact, it was very unique. I mean, there's not many of us, is there, Laurel? I mean, if you had all the classes together, maybe there's 4,500 of us in the world. So we do remain a unique breed of women. Yeah. And again, with so few of us, 120 started in a class of 1400 and we were spread out right uh, throughout the whole core. And so again, unless you had a roommate and we, we do have a, a common friend, Pam Hebert. Hebert. Oh, Pam Hebert. Yeah. <laughs> she was my Beast Barracks roommate. Okay. And, oh my gosh, because I'm from Boston. And so I had a little bit of a Boston accent, not too much, nothing like Hebert's. So You'll have to tell me that story about her <laughs> calling the minutes. Go tell tell that one. It's just ridiculous. Okay, okay. So one of the responsibilities of a fourth classman or a plebe was to call the minutes. That is to alert all the upperclassmen on that particular floor what the uniform was, how long we had until the formation. And so you might say, you know, sir, there are five minutes until dinner formation. The uniform is white over gray with sabers. However, our friend and my roommate as a beanhead or a fourth classman was Pam Hebert from New Hampshire. And she would pop off and say, sir, there are five minutes till dinner formation. The uniform is white over gray with sabers. And of course, the that just brought all kinds of attention from the upperclassmen. And then they'd have her say it over and over because they loved her accent. And we'd be back in the room laughing, you know, and she just Uh, What I admired about her is it didn't matter. You know, she was going to be proud of her New England roots and, you know, and she was going to need that to get through a place like West Point. And then, uh, you know, she's a successful business owner now, but I'll never forget that. I mean, we're laughing because it was a stressful time, as you remember, calling minutes because they could ask us anything at that time or look at our uniform and find some kind of discrepancy. So she was funny. Right. And during Beast Barracks, when we first got all our uniforms and we had to dump them all out and then we had our squad leader teach us how to fold everything and where everything went. She was with me then when our squad leader, Tom Austin, whom I've met recently with his wife, he lives in Colorado and had an interesting meeting with him. When he got to the, let's say the foundations, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) he turned bright red and didn't know what, what to do with it. How do you fold one of these things and where does it go? And he basically, oh my gosh, Pam and I were, you know, see, you're standing at attention and you just try not to crack up laughing. I, I actually felt so bad for him, but he was, he was a great squad leader to have for, for Beast Barracks. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, as it turns out, my squad leader, I heard from him after writing the book in my second detail, Beast Barracks squad leader. So for the listeners, Beast Barracks is our basic training. So given the name, you can probably imagine how challenging it was, but it was seven weeks long. So halfway through, you get a new squad leader and he was a firstie and I had forgotten his name. Yeah. 
Yeah, and yes, a senior. And anyway, he uh, saw my book in the West Point magazine and got a hold of me. And uh, so one of the things he made us do was memorize. We had a lot of things. We called it poop that we had were had to memorize like Schofield's definition of discipline. And there's the bugle notes. Yes. Lots of things in there. Good for you. 1979 and, um, bugle notes. Tell me you don't have yours. <laughs> I have mine. It's right over here. <laughs> and anyway, he, uh, he created personal poop for each of his squad mates. And so I had some Joe Snodgrass, Ray Royalty, who's now a major general. We all had ours. Uh, Tracy Curley, uh, she was in my squad, you know, so we all had it. But mine was, sir, I'm 98 pounds of twisted steel and sex appeal. John Wayne would rather French kiss a rattlesnake than mess with the likes of me, sir. (laughs) We'd have to scream it. And, um, Uh, He contacted me, and I wasn't sure when I first wrote the book. I didn't remember the bit about John Wayne and the French kiss. I must have blanked it out. But Joe Snodgrass got a hold of me and said, no, no, Sarah, it's not right. And then I said, oh, Tim, thanks for getting a hold of me. What's the truth? Which one is it? It was the one with the John Wayne. So (laughs) maybe part of us blanked out some things that were truly uncomfortable, (laughs) I think I've blanked out an awful lot. Maybe that's why I haven't written my book yet. <laughs> yeah, but I was going to say, he lives there in Boulder. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You mentioned that you were an enigma in your own family, and I yeah. can certainly relate to that. So, tell me about that. Like, How did your parents feel about your decision to go to West Point? Obviously, your father brought it up. Right. My mother was very supportive. You have to understand, my mother and father had a great relationship, and my father is the one who encouraged my mom to get her PhD, which was unheard of first in her family to do something like that. And um, it was still new for women to, you know, go to the highest level, you know, a terminal degree, so to speak. And so they, they kind of had a partnership, you know, my dad did the cooking, my mom did the cleaning kind of thing. And so she was supportive of this. In fact, it used to drive me crazy. And maybe this happened to you. She would introduce me as soon as I got accepted to everybody. This is my daughter, the West Pointer. You know, so sometimes like, could we have a conversation first? (laughs) So there was a bit of pressure to stay, I think, at West Point. And I think many of us struggled with that. If we left, we would have disappointed it. But where I got some enigma with my own family was maybe extended family, one of my brothers, maybe, but one of a real good example was my southern aunt who came to graduation. And as you remember, uh, that week, we could have our families come and join us at a table. And when I arrived, my family sat on the upperclassmen end of the table. And my classmates sat on the, because I arrived early, he sat where the plebes were, would normally. And so he was doing fourth class duties. And those included like cutting the cake and filling the water and doing things like that. And then she turned to me, you know, I've been here four years. And she turns to me and she says, Sarah, honey, what, what's your classmate doing there? Because he was cutting the cake. And I tried to explain, this is what we do. And she just shook her head. And she says, honey, that's woman's work. Oh, <laughs> how do you respond to that? <laughs> I was flabbergasted. I was stunned. She hadn't put it together that I'm kind of doing something here, you know. And, you know, she didn't have any clue of what this was about, what what we were trying to do as women. And so you 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 had those kind of awkward moments where, you 
had to be gracious because they're here to see your graduation. But at the same time, you're like, do you have any idea what I've been through? (laughs) Do you have any idea what West Point is and what the mission is? And doesn't it surprise you sometimes how few people really understand the academies? Absolutely. Now that I have been speaking and giving a lot of keynotes, I see this repeatedly. Uh, People are amazed at the story and amazed that we went through some of it and and they had no idea that there's still people that don't even understand that women are in the military. Okay. So you have, you know, that side. And then you have people that don't understand what we went through. Are they, and they appreciate it. And it gives them then a greater appreciation for people who serve. And I think it's a great message for women because it's still a great option for women to consider, you know, serving their country in that way. And yeah, so I've had some people that like, uh, what they find is that they can relate to my story because they've had their own struggles. Mm -hmm. And so it still resonates, but they're still surprised about some of the stuff we went through. Right. Well, like, like your father, my father also highly encouraged me. My mom was a secretary at the high school and someone from West Point called to get some boys transcript. And it was during a time when the guidance counselors went in and she said, oh, I have, I have two daughters still in school. And the, the man asked, well, where do they go to school? And she said, well, one of my daughters is at Smith College where I was attending at the time, and the other still in high school. And he said, Smith's a good prep school for West Point. Now, my mother shared the story at dinner thinking it was hilarious. And at the time, they, they didn't know that I was thinking about leaving. Because again, as you mentioned, I was the fourth of five girls. Dad had dipped into his retirement savings to send me to Smith for that first year and said would figure out the second. You know, I ended up going back for the first semester, second year. But during that time is when I started applying to West Point. And my dad was thrilled when I said it. You know, he was a World War II veteran, never talked to us girls about war or service or any of that stuff. So it's not like I grew up with this, I want to serve my country. It's not like it's, it wasn't that, but it, it grew into that kind of thing where it's like, this will be the biggest challenge of my life. I'm yes. not being challenged where I am. And I get to serve, I get to serve my country. I get to do something, as you mentioned, bigger than myself, which at the time I didn't even know what that meant. Right. Yeah. My mom, my mom was not as enthusiastic, though she was proud. I think she was concerned that I'd never have a family. Did you ever think about quitting while you were there? All the time. The first two years. Ridiculous (laughs) question, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And then I was like, uh, you know, uh, there was pressure not to. Uh, Sometimes I would look at the people that had, you know, they said, it's just not for me. I'm going to quit. And I'm like, how did they do that? To be quite completely transparent. But I liked some of it. I liked knowing that I've been tested in a way I never would have at a, at a traditional college. And that kind of kept me going. When I really considered it was when I dated an upperclassman, but you know, he sent me a dear Jane letter. So that kind of, (laughs) uh, from ranger school. So, you know, because there was a little pressure from him, you know, you're not happy there. You should leave. But I was like, I'm not a little, I'm not, I'm not going to be a little wife kind. And that kind of ended that relationship. And that's when I made the commitment. I'm not doing it for my parents. I'm not doing it for anyone. I'm doing it to complete something I started. So that was about you know, at the very last time where you could say, no, you know, I'm not going to stay. And he wouldn't incur some kind of military obligation. I had really made the commitment that summer before Cal year. 
So it wasn't um, your first butchering at the barbershop that made you want to quit? <laughs> oh, I wanted to quit. Yes, yes. I wanted to quit that first day. In fact, do you remember that parade? You know, it's amazing that they take us, get us in uniform, teach us how to march, and then we put on a parade for our parents. And there was part of me in that parade was like, oh, if I could just bolt and go see my parents, I could get out of here. But of course, I was too intimidated by that time to move. Uh, so there were, yes, many times that I really thought about leaving. But I, the real time I really considered it is that summer before cow year, our, our, our third year, where we would then incur obligation. But I, I made the right choice for me. For, I'm glad to hear that because some of our classmates don't feel that way. For me, it was second semester, sophomore year. And it was a Saturday morning. I remember sitting bolt upright in bed and I actually had applications out to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I figured I'd go into journalism. I always loved English and writing and all that. And I sat up and I thought, wow, I've been, I've been focusing on the wrong thing. I've been focusing on all the hard things, all the difficult things, all the ridiculous things every day, because it's so easy to see the bad, right? It's so easy to see and focus on the challenges. And it dawned on me that I had to change my own perception and and find something in each day that was good. And remember the initial reasons for my wanting to go there, which was the complete challenge, physical, mental, emotional, academic, the, the whole bit. And Again, it was kind of like I didn't want to let myself down at that point. Yeah. So that, then I just decided, you know, I have to do this. I come hell or high water, I'm I'm going to do this. We had an interesting, similar experience too with English teachers, which I think is hilarious. So tell me about your English teacher. All right. So you remember in basic training they had us take those tests. I think they were assessment tests to right. place this. Well, I got placed in advanced English, which you might expect, given that I'd taken AP English in high school, got A pluses, you know. So I'm in his class, and I can tell from the first time that I submitted a paper, he was marking me as a C student. And this was so hard. And I think that was, you know, a continual learning process at West Point that I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. And, you know, it was humbling. But I thought he was really picking on everything, like tearing everything apart. And even at that point, I still had this part in me, maybe it's the New England, you know, because I went to school in Boston, but I was like, I'm going to go talk to this guy. I just can't believe, you know, he's tearing me apart. So I attempted to have a conversation with the man. And I said, you know, he made me so mad, cutting this, you know, just tearing me apart, making me feel about this big. And I said, well, you know, I could have gone to Harvard. Now, the truth is I hadn't even applied, but, but I, knew I didn't have the months. But you could have, you could have. This thing when he said, look at your test scores. You barely made it into advanced English. And as though I'm lucky to be there and I better shut up, you know. And so that was the end of that. And imagine my disappointment when I had the same man for philosophy the next semester. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was... worked hard, but I was always B minus C. I was an English major at Smith and then went and I could have taken a uh, advanced, but I didn't want to because I figured I'm going to take the easy courses that I can because of our academic load. And I wasn't strong on the maths and sciences, but I was getting D's and F's on my papers. And I'm pretty much sure that the teacher did not want women there. And, and we had that with some of our classmates and with some of our, of our instructors. That was uh, very disconcerting. It was. And I remember 
with philosophy, I said, okay, so now I'm going to go talk to the uh, the head of the department and get out from under this guy. There's got to be somebody else. <laughs> and I remember going to see this colonel and saying, listen, I've struggled with this guy. I think I might do better if I get another opportunity. I mean, any college, you could do that. And he just turned to me. He said, we don't make changes just for a cadet. So I was stuck with the guy. And yeah, those were those were tough times. But as I allude in my book, I actually did learn something from him later that I applied in a in a management consulting um, scenario. So, you know, maybe you have to go through those things because you learn something despite that, you know, that situation you were in. Sometimes you were in while you're in it. It's horrible. And you feel this prejudice, you feel this bias, and there's you don't feel you can do anything about it. But you are learning something if you're open to learning something there. You, you absolutely are. And it gives you that grit to just keep on going and to kind of show them, right? Right. <laughs> but you ended up getting a mentor, one of your instructors. Yes, yes. Um, and that was second semester, uh, our fourth class year, our freshman year. And from the minute I went into this man's class, for one, he would call us by our first names. Now, I don't know if that was hard for you, but I have a difficult maiden name, Foch. It's very Swiss. It has a lot of consonants. People would mispronounce it. And to always be called by your last name was just, even that was difficult. I Now, I should have expected that, but you know, whatever. And when he started calling us by our first names, it felt like, wow, he's human. There's a human constructor here. But he was in enthusiastic about psychology, which is what he was teaching. And so I thought, you know, I'm feeling overwhelmed all the time, all the time, all the time. So I'm going to see if he'll help me get my organization together. So I set up what we called additional instruction, went in and he started talking to me. And one of his first questions is, is Sarah, what's your spiritual life like? And that was such a deep question. And um, at, at the time, I was thinking, I pray all the time here. You know, I just get through the day. And anyway, he began to be a mentor, a person that took a uh, vested interest in me. And we met every like week, once a week for several weeks. And when I think back on it, the, the sacrifice he made to not spend that time with his young family, to invest in this cadet who was just an average cadet, nothing spectacular, and just encourage me and say things like, the best thing that ever happened to West Point was the inclusion of women. I mean, that was just huge. And so it's interesting. I write the book. I get a hold of him. He writes the foreword. So Brigadier General um, Barney Forsythe. Thank you, Brigadier General Forsythe, for being a mentor. I had Colonel Hoy. I don't know if you ever had Colonel Pat Hoy. He was my mentor, just an amazing man. And and actually he was instrumental, English, and he he was instrumental in helping me figure out how to stay. And he told me one day when I was struggling with the decision, he said, if you have to change who you are inside in order to stay here, you have no choice but to leave. Wow. Yeah, that was like a wow. And so, I, I mean, talk about having to think about that, right? Do I have to change who, who I am inside to stay here? And you have to play games, right? I mean, a lot of what we did was playing the game, following the rules, memorizing stupid stuff because that's what you had to do. I can still recite the definition of leather. <laughs> can you? <I> it's, 
oh, oh, right. oh my gosh. Serve the fresh skin of an animal, clean and divested of all hair, fat, and other extraneous matter. Be immersed in a dilute solution of tannic acid. A chemical combination ensues. The gelatinous tissue of the skin is converted into a non-putrescible substance, impervious to and insoluble in water. This, sir or ma'am, is leather. And like, why do I still remember that? <laughs> but I don't think you do it yet. <laughs> part, part of the game, right? And you can take this into the corporate world, too. I mean, it's, it's not that we are, we're actors in different roles, right? Yeah. Yes. Right. And I think for women, sometimes what we did is we acted a way to be accepted. And sometimes we weren't thinking about the other women that were coming up behind us. And I certainly saw that to an extent with some of the upper class women that I had a relationship with. Others were great. So there was this mix. But I, I think sometimes we were so focused on our own pain, <laughs> our own ability to survive and get through stuff that we weren't thinking about the women that were behind us and encouraging them on my cross country team, of course, but I was thinking about the ones in my company. Did I really invest in them like I could have? Probably not. Pro- probably not. And again, it was, it was a survival thing. And many of the upper class women, I think were even far more harsh on us than the men. And you address that in your book as well. And 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 I can understand, gosh, I mean, those the first class, the fir- very first class, how could they, how could any of us have experienced what they did? You know, we were in the fourth class, right? The first time that we had women in every class there, which is still amazing to me that we did that. But that first class, I, I don't, I don't know that I would have been mature enough at the time to have made it with what they dealt with. And they they really shook things up in a big way. Yeah, they did. And there's some wonderful, wonderful leaders that have come out of that, of course, and um, people that I I, to this day admire. Yeah. And and, looking at it now, I can understand some of the toxicity sometimes that I did experience with a few. And I kind of, you know, again, they were young. They were put in a situation. They're young leaders. They're put in a situation where I think they thought they were doing their duty mm-hmm. by making sure we didn't have it any easier than they did because they didn't want to deal with the ambiguity of that situation. And they weren't equipped. I mean, think about it. They didn't have sexual harassment programs, mm-hmm. processes, anything for us. Right. And so we were just kind of figuring it out. And if they came down hard on us, I think they thought they were protecting us. And maybe in a way they were. Right. And again, they couldn't show favoritism, as you mentioned. And right. it's such a complicated environment, the, all the academies, particularly West Point. Were you ever scared at West Point? Um, I think that first day, I, I, I mean, it was just so overwhelming. The man, they, we called it the cadet in the red sash. He had to go report to him. And that was such an intimidating time. That's when I wondered, what have I gotten myself into? And am I going to be able to stand here? And I deplored myself for breaking down in tears a couple times, but it was something, I don't even know if we can describe it because it's so completely different than anything I had ever experienced in my life. I didn't have, like you, I didn't, even though my father was actually a hero in World War II, it was silent generation. We didn't really know about that. And then to have people yelling at you all the time, that's when I was scared that will they try something? But what I found is they were struggling too. 
And I remember my poor platoon sergeant, I don't remember his name, but he could tell that I was losing it a couple times, you know, and he took me somewhere like out in the back of a building and he said, look, I'm whatever his name was and tried to shake my hands. And I had seen that uh, TV special on West Point Women. I said, I can shake your hands. I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> like he was trying to say, you're going to live. You're going to be okay. But that was probably the only time I was scared in terms of what have I gotten and, and are they going to be harsher on me, you know, than I can ever imagine. So again, kudos to the first class of, you know, right. some of the stuff that they, they endure just constant screaming and yelling and no recourse at all. Yeah, so. Right. I remember Nightland Nav at Camp Buckner and I remember it was so dark and there were, there were edges and in my mind, I could have fallen off a cliff and died and no one would have found me. I remember actually feeling a little bit of fear. And I think a lot of the training that we went through puts you in that position where you physically have this fear response, but you got to get through it, right? I mean, the yeah. combat swimming, the the indoor obstacle course, <laughs> there are so many physical things that we do that are just thrilling and, and could, could stop a person jumping off the 30 foot tower, you yeah. know, all, yeah. all those things. I um, think, um, cause I grew up in an athletic family and had brothers and I had done stuff like outward bound. Uh, those things weren't as scary to me, but I do remember I guess it was in fourth class swimming or cleave swimming when we had to go off the platform. Right. That's that like was 30 feet up. Because our dear classmate, Margaret Lanieri, Peggy, she went before me, fell forward and got <gasps> bruised all over. And then I had to go right after her. Then I was scared because I hadn't up to that point think I'm, I could get hurt. I was just listening to what they said, you know? <laughs> so yes, that's true. Yeah, and that yeah, that thirty-four tower, the, very scary. Kind of, kind of like airborne school, right? You're standing in yeah. the door of an open aircraft, way up in the air, and they tell you to jump, and it's not your body's initial inclination to do that. Right, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. I'll tell a story about airborne school. I had actually graduated, so I was a second lieutenant when I went, um, which has its was a bad thing because they pick on second lieutenants, but. Anyway, I was a stick leader, so like a squad leader, I had people I'm responsible for. And when I went, and that was true, even though we had the short hair still from West Point, they made us put a nylon that you would, a knee high around our heads and tape the back of our necks as though the short hair is going to somehow cause damage or get it hung up in the equipment. And so I had this massive headache because a knee high is like this, you know, I mean, it's like this restrictive. And I was trying to get my courage up for this 30 foot tower and I wasn't paying attention apparently like I should to my stick and the black hat came over and had me bend over to check our harnesses. Mm -hmm. Slap me. I mean, I mean, like slapped me so hard. You're not taking care of your stick. And then that messed with my confidence. And then when I got up to the jump the first time, I, I couldn't. It took about two or three people. And I remember a West Point cadet, she had recent grad saying, you can do it. You can do it. And I was like, okay, I can do it. You know, I went out. But yeah, I mean. And yet, even as a second lieutenant, I felt I had no recourse in that situation. Yeah, you know, I, I understand. We are visiting with Sarah Poticha, 
author of West Point Woman. And Sarah, tell me why this book and why now? To my listeners out there today, I hope you're enjoying my episode with Sarah Poticha, author of West Point Woman, How Character is Created and Leadership is Learned. Please consider becoming a patron of the Alligator Preserves podcast. I am a one-person operation, and your contribution will enable me to maybe buy a strong cup of tea every month. Go to patreon.com slash alligatorpreserves to see how you can support my work. And now stay tuned as Sarah and I talk about her book, West Point Woman. Well, I was invited to speak to a women's leadership group. Now it's been last fall, the fall before last. And they had selected me from other speakers because of my West Point experience. And what they wanted me to do was talk about my leadership philosophy, but to relate it to the West Point experience. So I had never spoken about that. You probably haven't had, you know, I've told people different stories, but never in that context. So as I worked on it, I was like, how do I talk about my leadership philosophy without talking about some of these very experiences, some of the stories that I've already told um, in this podcast? And so I put this thing together. I delivered it to these women that were all senior women going through this leadership program. And I couldn't get over their response. They were like, wow. I mean, wow. And they're like peppering me with questions. And so when I made my way back to the airport, I began thinking about it. And um, I remember saying to myself, you know, I haven't told some of these very stories to my daughters. Why have I kept some of these to myself? And then I thought, you know, there's so many of these stories that teach principles that people that I've worked with, people that have been held back in their careers are their I've coached that are really struggling in a situation or they're frustrated because they can't move forward. I could teach these principles. So it kind of laid the foundation. Let's write a book that tells stories. I've been in leadership development and learning and development for so long that I know that people remember stories a lot longer than giving a principal or a tenant. And so I love to still tell stories. So um, as it turned out, I met a coach and uh, author, uh, book coach rather. And um, she told me just start writing. And I'm telling you, Laura, the stories just came out. And then it was pretty simple because I've written all kinds of leadership stuff for other people. So mm-hmm. I know how to put together how to apply it. You know, that was the easy part. So I just wrote a series of stories. And then I would unearth these principles that are, you know, they're universal principles that we were kind of taught at the academy. But giving them such a sense that people can then apply them to your lives. That's, I think, is what my book uh, attempts to do. And I think it's right because there's a lot of dialogue about women in the workforce now and some of the things that have gone on. But I think people need tools. They need a way to navigate things that seem like there's conflict in the workplace or I can't get ahead or I'm struggling with managing a lot of life circumstances and working. And so it's resonating with those kind of audiences. And that's why I wrote it. It was really in part a legacy for my own daughters, but then it was like, there's this bigger crowd of people that need some of these skills. Right. And and I think your point about the questioning of why you hadn't shared these stories with your daughters. I remember, well, every once in a while, Mike will say something, you know, both of us married West Point graduates, 
something will come out and our boys who are now 25 and 28 will say, are you kidding me? I, you know, I never knew that. It's not like we talk to our kids about things that we've done in our lives as they're growing up. It's almost like you have to wait till you're a grandparent to share with grandkids who ask those questions. <laughs> I know. So I don't think it's unusual that you, know, you hadn't shared some of it. Yeah. But it's been very neat for them to read the book and then to have deeper conversations, you know, and as I share in the book, my first husband, our classmate, Eddie Gabe, passed away. And for them to kind of know their father in another light and to talk about some of those kind of things as well. But it's been really good, really good to increase because my daughter is, so Larissa is 30 and then Gwyneth is 28 and then Joy is 21. So they're at different, they're all in their 20s at the time of the writing and, you know, handling different types of work-related, you know, challenges, school-related challenges. And it's been kind of neat to, them to see their mother as a young person and some right. of the things that you and I went through. Right. As far as cultivating character goes, mm-hmm. can things like integrity be taught? I mean, I know the answer is yes, but how do you teach integrity? Well, I think in terms of like, if we talk about our children, you know, modeling that, uh, showing my children that, you know, when I do an expense report, I, I report what is accurate. Uh, when we were leaders in the Army, uh, it came down to not falsifying any kind of documentation. I was a, an ordinance officer, a logistician, and so there was often reporting that we would do on the readiness of and where they were in terms of their repairs, the readiness of vehicles, and I wasn't going to doctor that. And I think when you lay a pattern for your life and you're consistent in doing those kind of things, people know it. They know that you're, you're trustworthy. They can count on your word. And I think that was something that was cultivated, you know, in my upbringing, but also really certainly at West Point. And, and so I think we teach it by modeling it, by expecting it of others to hold people accountable. I mean, if my kids really want to disappoint me, tell me an untruth. You know, they knew there, we don't do that in our family. Consequences, Um, the idea of consequences. There were, yeah. So I I think it, in the workplace, uh, they really do look at leadership. I talk about a leadership shadow and if they're squirrely at the top, it's going to eventually come down. You know, you see this happen all the time, but I've also seen leaders that have talked about, I've had these challenges, uh, integrity issues in my past, but this is how I handled them. And I thought that was a great way to, you know, for him, this in one executive that I used to coach would share that with his folks to say, it's not that I'm not tested. It's not that I don't have moral dilemmas, but I always choose this right path because I want to have less to explain in the long run. And then by teaching that he models it. And I think people absorb it that way. And you're right. And there were consequences if anybody under him did anything shady, they were going to lose their jobs. <laughs> and and I, I think of the four responses that we had as fourth classmen, mm-hmm. as plebes, and one of them is no excuse, sir. No excuse, ma'am. Right. I think that's such a powerful phrase to be able to say. And kind of like, like you're saying, I mean, it, it stops with you, right? Why did you mess up? No excuse. I should have done it. You can come up with a million excuses. 
but no one wants to hear a million excuses. Right. They that want you to accountability. You know, I am accountable and being able to say that in, um, and, and really own it. I think that's the point uh, and, and what they were teaching us, you know, even right. at a young age. Right. I mean, I mean you got so many great chapters in your book and I especially like the parts about humor, right? Because okay, and again, so many funny things happen and you have to chuckle and you have to keep that in mind and encouragement, helping your classmates. You mentioned, Oh, you mentioned Ray royalty helping you at a particular point, encouraging you, giving you that, that little, that, just that little boost to let you know that you could finish the, I think it was a run or something. Right. And yes. In beast barracks. Yeah, that was because running in formation is very challenging. And uh, it, this is a, so people can understand, I mean, you you had to stay completely parallel with the people to your right and left and, and not too far the people in front of you while you're running. But we all have different size legs. I'm pretty short. I'm five foot two. And so it creates this accordion effect. And so you're either running, you know, running up and down, you know, try to catch up. And there were three running groups. I came in as a runner. So I was in the fastest running group. So they were going to be the fastest. And, and we were returning from this run and we never really knew how long we were going to run. I think there was a little bit of psychology in that. Yeah. And they started running faster and faster and faster. And that was the one time, because like you, I recognized you don't want to fall out here because they'll make it as another reason why you shouldn't be here. Right. Uh, so I had made a commitment, you know, I'm never going to run, fall out of a run. But this time I really thought, I don't know if I'm going to make it. My legs are burning. I mean, uh, my body's being pushed in ways I didn't. And Ray sensed that I was falling just a little bit back. And he just, all he said is, no, you can do it. And that was all I needed. And I kept going and, you know, finished it. But, you know, it does make you wonder if he hadn't been there, you know, if he had been negative or, you know, whatever, I might've made a different choice, but it's the power of encouragement is you can't underestimate that no matter what you're going through. You really can't. My savior was Tom Zeke. Shout out to Tom Zeke. I don't know if you know, know him, but it was the march out to Lake Frederick with our packs. And it was how many miles? I don't know. It well, was, yeah. 12, 12 miles in that endless hill an endless hill. And here I'm doing everything psychologically I can to keep myself focused on, Oh, let's, find something. Oh, there's a butterfly. Oh, there's a flower. Oh, there's something. I felt myself slowing down, which I didn't want to do because that messes up everybody behind you. And I was really, really struggling, doing my best as you were during that run. And all of a sudden I felt just like, I felt lighter. And I looked to my right and Tom Zeke had just taken the top of my pack and just given it a little lift to get to the top of the hill. And holy mackerel, it, it, it meant the world to me. Just that teeny little act of compassion from a classmate. And not all of our classmates were compassionate or helpful. Right, exactly. Oh, great story. I have a similar one. Uh, do you remember one of the requirements was... I guess it was the, the men had to take wrestling and uh, boxing and we took self-defense. And so we would throw each other over as women. Close quarter and, combat. Yeah. Yeah. Then they decided 
oh, let's do city streets and have our classmates attack us, our male classmates. And then they waited on. Well, who does Sarah get but Larry Beisel, who is, was on the Army wrestling team as a heavyweight. <laughs> Sarah, five foot two, 100 pounds. And this guy, probably two foot, I don't know what he was, you know, what is it? Six foot 12, yeah. Six foot 12. And, and I'm supposed to throw him over my shoulder. Remember when we had to do the, everything yes. was great too, you know, and kick him in, you know, pull him over, kick him in his back. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, but as soon as I grabbed his hand, he says, don't worry about it, Sarah, I'll take care of it. And you know how wrestlers can really fall. My brothers were wrestlers. So, you know, anyway, he goes up and over and bam on the mat. And then it's so impressed the PE people. They didn't catch on. They gave me an A plus. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Oh my gosh. Thank God for Larry. <laughs> that is funny. So let's see one of your other, you talk about humility. How, and again, how do you teach humility? That's one thing. And one thing that you that we discover as leaders, I'm not sure if we we're taught this, maybe we were, but a good leader will take full responsibility for anything that is failed right. and will give all the credit to subordinates when you succeed. Yes, yes, exactly. And that's and tough. That's a, that's a tough thing to do, right? Right. It is, it is. And when you are in the army and, you know, again, my branch was very large because, you know, it's that logistical tail that's so big. So I had big units and, and you can't be everything to everybody. And, and you had to, for me, I had to rely on my warrant officers, you know, that had much more experience than me to make sure that we were getting, you know, all the repair things done on, you know, in a timely manner. So the combat arms that we supported could do their missions. So I think that was part of it, realizing that I have to trust them that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. So I can, you know, take care of what I got to do. And I need to honor them. I need to fight for them. I need to fight that they get enough sleep. I need to fight that, you know, they get their promotions and take care of those things. And I think it was that kind of combination of having that uh, reliance on them and realizing I'm only, we're only going to be as successful as we work together as a team. And of course I've spent years in leadership development and worked with all kinds of teams. So I always will look at the ones that are successful and I'll, you'll see a couple characteristics, you know, they have team goals. The leader typically gives credit where credit is due. They're not all about themselves. So those are things that we were being taught, even though we didn't really necessarily understand it at the time. But again, it was reemphasized when we then became leaders of soldiers and they had to report to people, you know, as part of a unit. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sarah, do you think there's any challenge you don't think you could overcome? Well, I'll tell you, the biggest challenge I had was becoming a single parent very suddenly. And that was very incredibly challenging because um, we had a wonderful marriage. We had, you know, divided duties, you know, and then you're responsible for these three daughters, you know, and, and they were very young, um, just nine and seven and a half. And mm. I was actually pregnant with joy when Eddie died. Mm. So then I have to raise a child without a father. And those are all challenging things. But I came from a a place of faith, you know, in God. And that was a real component of my uh, survival through those times. But I was so thankful 
before my West Point experience because I just figured out how to put one foot in front of the other, navigate situations I never thought I'd have to try to figure out, you know, um, you know, really finding people at a soccer field the first time you go there, hey, do you want to do carpool? Yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, all the things that you have to take on and have one person doing when it's usually done by two people. And I, it took me a while to want to go back to school. I don't know how you felt after your West Point experience, but I kind of questioned myself on some of my abilities <laughs> academically. But when I decided to go back and get my master's, I loved it and did incredibly well. So, you know, I guess that was a, a, a time where I, I struggled with myself to, you know, my grades weren't great. So it was going to be hard to get into uh, a master's program, but I found I, I was able to. So sometimes those things were a little challenging. So I can't, I can't imagine that there would be any challenge you wouldn't be able to overcome, I guess is where I was going with that. Or <laughs> I've reinvented myself a couple times. And yes. I think, you know, women have to do that. I think we all do because our children get older and many of us, you know, choose to stay with our children, you know, stop working and then we re-enter the workforce or maybe we work while they're young and then we, you know, go and do something different, go out into management consulting. I was just having breakfast with a very experienced um, top level management consultant only with, you know, C-level people. And she's trying to go from, okay, how do I downshift now in my life? And I was like, yeah, that's a good question. The, I think the hardest transition, I know the hardest transition I had was going from being active duty army to being a stay-at-home mom. I did I did nine years active duty. And by the way, I was thrilled to go back to grad school for English uh, when the time came. And, Isn't that great? And oh, my gosh. Considering the background. Oh. I mean, it's just so beautiful about your story, Laura. It's it's. It's unique, but it, so nine years active duty, went back to West Point to actually teach in the English department, got there early. Mike was, my husband, Mike was already there. He was depart, uh, department with a heart. He was teaching in the, the uh, physical education department, which is kind of funny because he was a rock in swimming and he had to teach swimming. And the, the rock, you know, no body fat. He could have a lungs full of air and still sink to the bottom of the pool. I mean, that's, so that was a little bit ironic. He ended up with that, but I ended up that this was in 1992 and our oldest son, Nick, who was born the first week of second semester of grad school. I just missed a week of school because my parents came down to help us for a couple months, which was amazing. But at the time he was just like, he was one, he was so cute. And I was thinking again, as women, I loved being in the army, you know, nine years in the transportation corps, loved it, loved being in charge. But there was this little guy and I didn't want to, give up that experience. So it was a tough decision. They were drawing down the army in 92. So I resigned. And then I did like you did. I did military academy liaison officer for three years, uh, yeah. reserve, reserve time. But but that hardest point was there I was an, a, a resigned army captain at West Point, pushing my son on a swing, seeing my classmates go by in uniform, thinking I should be doing something in my head because I've, you know, that's what I did for so long. And then a matter of focus, right? Looking at my child and saying, this is what I'm to be doing right now. So I, I really feel like I've had the best of both worlds. I had the military career. I got to be a mom for a while. Then when the kids were older, I got to teach in public education. And, and now I'm an author and just 
and a amazing author, <laughs> by the way, people. You don't know this. This is a novelist with a novelist. I mean, I'm, I'm in awe of you. I'm having fun with that. I'm I'm pleased that my trilogy is done. I'm going to work this year on a nonfiction book based on my dad's World War II letters. So I've got uh, again. And once you've you've done a book, so you've done one book. Is there going to be a follow on? I think so. I'm working. Uh, so, do you remember Gail O'Sullivan? Oh yes, she was from my hometown, Braintree, Massachusetts. Oh my where god! Also, Sylvanus there, the father of the military academy. Is so fine. she wrote "Tough as Nails: One Woman's Journey Through West Point," and uh, I loved it. And uh, I, I, she was on my cross country team, so I had known her at the academy, and I like her style of writing as well. She's so um, dispassionate and you know self revealing and funny. So I don't know if you know part of her story, but she was diagnosed with a hearing, disabling hearing issue, and she is completely deaf now. And she's telling me, you know, because we email each other that she was working with her brother, who's a West Pointer on a book, and she's a real nerd and stuff. I'm like, great, because, you know, I'm an idea person, but that that other stuff, you know, that's probably why I did get some of those bad grades actually at West Point, the grammar and stuff. And, and so um, we're coming up with the idea for a book and you'd be a great candidate for it. We want to do a series. We hope it'll be a series of stories of West Point mothers and how we have taught our children certain things because you also have that now, as you know, West Point women, who have had children that go to West Point, and now some of them are having children, believe it or not. I mean, we're getting to be that place. I'm, I'm not 60. <laughs> and so I thought it would be great to tell a series of stories because now it's women that have had children that have gone to combat mm-hmm. or they've gone to combat and now their children have gone to combat. I mean, I just think it would be a, Another sequence in our historical, in a way, but it could be funny. They, I, I'm sure, there'd be heartwarming stories as well yeah. as heart wrenching stories. You right. know, right? So you provide services to people. Mm-hmm. You have a website www.westpointwoman.com, and our listeners and viewers can go check out what you offer there. You also offer coaching calls. What might someone expect in a coaching call? Well, I can do a series of different things. I have a series of assessments um, that I could give an individual if they wanted to know what their emotional intelligence is and then develop a plan to improve it. That's one thing we can change. We can't really change our IQ, but we can change our emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have a series of assessments I can give people. Or let's say they find themselves stuck in a situation. I'm a certified executive coach and I can help them find ways to move forward in their lives, set goals. The other things that I do is keynote speaking. Based on my book, I I can talk on a lot of subjects uh, related to that, such as resilience, uh, women in the workforce, you know, humor, the power of humor and how that affects our cortisol and Oxycontin in our brain. It changes our uh, chemistry, how to articulate your story, diversity, a variety of different things. So I do keynotes, I can do leadership development programs and executive coaching. All right. Any shout outs you want to give? Well, um, I want to thank uh, Kathy Fayak, who is my um, book coach. So if anybody's out there that's interested in 
writing a book and you feel a little bit like that's like a big elephant, uh, she's really, really good. She was just wonderful and just telling me to write. And then she would review things. I would also say, if you are interested in doing this, I, I believe there's a lot of stories out there that West Point women have. So those that are listening, please go to my website and put those stories in there. And if you need help learning how to uh, articulate your story and you want to get into speaking, join the National Speakers Association. It's really a well worthwhile endeavor. And uh, I want to you know, give a shout out to my classmates who have been great getting me connected to different associations that have hired me now to speak. So um, lots of my classmates have been involved with that. So I want to thank them. And thank you, Laurel, for this opportunity with podcasts, because a lot of times work comes because of podcasts. So I appreciate this. Right. Well, I'm having fun doing it. That's for sure. So how do people get in touch with you? You can um, email me, Sarah, S-A-R-A, at Sarah, S-A-R-A, Poteca, P-O-T-E-C-H-A dot com. Um, if you just go to my website, West Point Woman, you can also send me information that way. And if you want a, a personal copy of the book with my signature, you can order it on my website. Otherwise, just order it on Amazon. And I understand that you give some of the proceeds from your book to go ahead That's and explain me. that. Yes. At this point in my life, I love giving back. And so a good portion of all my proceeds from book sales go to veteran service organizations that support wounded warriors or their families. And so one of the key ones I have given and donated to includes Families of the Wounded Fund, which is a great organization. So when a veteran gets or a service member gets injured, they're going to go to a VA hospital and they all have different specialty centers. And often what they found is they will heal better if they have family members near them. However, the military does not spend any money or give any money to the family member to live near them. Mm. So, for example, in Richmond at that Veterans Hospital, McGuire, that's the spinal and the brain trauma uh, specialty center. So they're going to be there a while. And so sometimes it's a father or mother and they have to lose a job to be able to live near their person. So what Families of the Wounded Fund does is actually write checks to these individuals so they can set up a household. So if it's a spouse with some kids, they might need to get a house. So they will write checks for those living expenses. And they're vetted and, you know, they work with the VA to make sure these are legitimate cases. But um, I love them. I like Active Heroes, which is here in Louisville, where I'm located, and that's suicide prevention. And um, they have a amazing facility here where people that have been through trauma can go and kind of get healed. Um, they've got horses and all kinds of like a petting farm and archery and nice. things yeah. that they can heal from. So both of those organizations I think are great. What a noble thing to do. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you for sharing your stories with us. And I would recommend that you get Sarah's book, West Point Woman, check out her website, and uh, Sarah, I look forward to continuing our, our new relationship. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you, Sarah. Bye-bye. You can find today's show notes with links and photos on my website at leadvillelaurel.com. If you enjoyed this and other episodes, please subscribe to Alligator Preserves on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends about it. I hope you'll help support Alligator Preserves on Patreon. Check out the rewards you'll receive at patreon.com slash alligatorpreserves. And join me next time when I'll talk about something completely different. Until then...
be good to yourselves and support those who are supporting our nation. Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.